The scripture for today comes from Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought back against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he, the dragon, was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them, But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Good morning, friends. Thank you, Jason, for that. Thank you, you, Tony, also, and Debbie. So much good stuff. Welcome to Advent, everybody. It is on. So good. Hey, uh, part of that is uh, this new series that we are doing this year. Uh, This is Characters Not Found in Your Nativity Scene. That's going to be our teaching series for the month of December. So uh, we've got some good ones. We've got uh, five women of questionable reputation. Uh, We have the shaming neighbors. And then today we're going to kick it off with the homicidal dragon. Right, So maybe you didn't know that there's a Christmas dragon, uh, but sure enough, there is. And uh, we're kind of keeping with the Revelation theme. We've, we've been in Revelation through the fall, so it was like, hey, how about one more? Uh, let's, let's kick off Christmas with a little bit of Revelation also. I'm, I'm sure you'll agree from the reading that it's, it's all pretty clear, right? So we, can, <laughs> we could probably just have a benediction and wrap up the morning, um, but, uh, but we'll... We'll say some things here, too. We're, we're keeping it weird, staying in Revelation. So uh, a reminder for you, if, and perhaps especially if you missed the earlier series that we did in Revelation. So Revelation is all symbols and signs, right? It's, it's a very cryptic form of communication. It's a genre, actually, called apocalyptic. And it was pretty common in the first century. It wouldn't have sounded as weird uh, to folks back then, as, as it does to us now. But it, it was a way of communicating to one another while recognizing the empire is listening, right? Most of Revelation, contrary to what we often think about, most of Revelation is not about the future. It's actually about things that were happening in that time. 
And, and it had a lot to do with Rome and the Roman Empire and the persecution that Christians were experiencing and, and telling the story in a way that would strengthen the believers who are reading it and hearing it in their churches, but in a way also that would allow them to somewhat uh, fly under the radar as, uh, with the persecution that was happening with Rome. So uh, think of Revelation this way. So Revelation, kind of its function is to reveal Right? That's what apocalypse means in Latin, is to reveal. And it is pulling back the curtain and allowing us to see a little bit of the unseen world, allowing us to see a bit of what is going on behind the scenes and not just what's happening immediately in front of us. Revelation pulls back the curtain. And this passage, Revelation 12, that we're looking at this morning, so what are we looking at? This is, this is interesting stuff, because what we're looking at is the Christmas story. This is what the Christmas story looks like from the other side of the curtain. And it's a startling image, right? Because uh, uh, especially if you grew up in the church, but probably even if you didn't, you know, just our experience of the Christmas story, you know, it's Christmas time. You and I are picturing Mary and Joseph, and they're traveling to a little town of Bethlehem and wondering if there's going to be room for them in the inn and all this stuff. And then Revelation comes along and says, yeah, and there's this dragon waiting to devour the child. The reality that we don't see is Satan and his attempt to thwart God's plans for the salvation of mankind. Uh, so uh, think about it this way as we get into this text. Why, why was this important for the early churches to know? Why did they need to know not just the, the more familiar Luke 2 version of the story, but also the Revelation 12 version of the Christmas story? Why do we need to be told about this non-nativity scene version of Christmas? What is the Holy Spirit trying to convey to them and by extension to us as well? And what I want to suggest to you this morning is this passage is meant to remind both the early Christians and us of three unseen realities. Namely, that you and I are part of a larger story, that Jesus has defeated our enemy, and that you and I have an important role to play in the story that God is laying out in front of us. Uh, so let's pray together, and we'll look at our text. Uh, Father God, as we come into this season, it's so easy to be consumed with what's right in front of us and to forget all altogether the larger meaning of Christmas and the larger realities behind it. God, we pray that as we worship today and indeed as we, we go through this entire month of worshiping together, we pray that our focus would be on you. Lord, that we would see you clearly and we would respond to who you are and to what you've done. God, meet us this morning. Uh, we pray for each of us, no matter where we're at with you, that you'd be working in us and drawing us one step closer to Jesus. Uh, we thank you, God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Revelation 12. So the first, first aspect of this reality is this, that you are part of a larger story. You are part of a larger story. 
Chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. So pause there for a moment. This is sign number one. There's going to be two of them. Sign number one, a woman clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, twelve stars forming a crown over her head. What do these things signify? Uh, clothed with the sun. This is a picture of glory, right? This is a, a, a picture of majesty that would have been familiar to the original hearers. The moon under her feet. Now, to say that something was under somebody's feet in the ancient world meant that they had authority over that thing. And saying that she has authority over the moon, well, uh, the moon was, the, uh, was symbolic of the goddess Artemis, which was one of the dominant deities in that time. So it's suggesting that this woman has authority. And then the, the, the crown, the 12 stars making up a crown. This goes back, it's a throwback to Old Testament imagery, and it, it's revealing the identity of this woman. The 12 stars, this, this is uh, significant of Israel, that this would be the people of God. 12 stars for 12 tribes. And as we get deeper into the text, we see it's not just Israel, but the people of God presently as well. 12, uh, 12 tribes and also the 12 apostles. And Israel here is, perfo- is personified in the person of Mary as well. Israel has been on this journey giving birth to the Messiah, right? It's been going on for centuries, but it's coming to the present moment in the person of Mary, this young woman who is about to give birth to Jesus. That's the picture. That's the first sign. A second sign appears too. Verse 3, it says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So here's the second sign. First sign is this woman that signifies the people of God and is personified in Mary. The second sign is this seven-headed dragon that we will soon learn signifies Satan. Uh, Horns, that's in ancient language, that's a picture of strength, right? Ten horns means kind of uh, ten times strength, strength perfected, if you will. This is a, a powerful being, so powerful that his tail is able to knock a third of the stars out of the sky. Uh, in, in Jewish thought, in ancient Christian thought, this was, was often thought to be the, the number of angels that Satan was able to take with him to turn to his side. A third of heaven joined Satan in his rebellion against God. And then, and then you've got this grotesque image of sign number two, the dragon crouching in front of the woman uh, waiting to eat her child as the child is born. Uh, I'm going to guess that image is not on any of the Christmas cards that you gave <laughs> or received this particular year. Then the child, the child is described as a son, a male child who will rule with an iron scepter. This is a callback 
uh, to Psalm chapter 2, maybe read this one this week, but it's, this is an image of the Messiah, that he is one who will have authority over the nations and will be able to usher in the kingdom of God, a world finally that functions the way that it should. Now, maybe note this too before we go to the next verse, but note this. We've got these two signs, right? We've got the woman, we have the dragon. What in this passage so far is not a sign? It's the child. It's the child. You see, the the woman signifies something greater. The woman is a callback to the people of Israel, to the people of God through the ages. Uh, The dragon is a sign as well. It points beyond itself to this ancient reality of Satan who has been at war with God since the beginning, at least our beginning. Uh, But the child, the child isn't a sign. The child is the thing to which all other signs have been pointing the entire time. The child is the central reality of human history and what God has been doing. And in this larger story of which we're being told we are a part, the central figure is the child. And the rest of the narrative revolves around this child that is to come. Now we read here that the dragon intends to kill the child, but before he can, it says the child is snatched up to God and his throne, right? That's the ascension of Christ into heaven. And in fact, in this this one verse, we have a very compressed version of the entire birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus, culminating in his ascending into heaven after being resurrected. So what's going on here? What is it that we are looking at? What is is Revelation telling us? Again, it's this idea that you and I are part of a larger story. That even as as we are going about our lives, you know, we're, we're going about our business, we're going about our work, we're going to school, we're engaged in relationships, We're going to the grocery store. We're managing our bank accounts. We're coming to church. We're engaging in leisure. All of these things. Friends, even as you and I are living our daily lives, there is a larger story that is happening around us. And if you and I were able to get a peek behind the curtain, if we were able to see not just what's in front of us, but to see the spiritual realities behind these, it would give us a totally different view, a totally different perspective on what it is to live our lives, to live as those who are engaged, whether we're aware of it at any given moment or not, who are engaged in a larger story. Think, if you will, think about Frodo. Living in the Shire, he's doing his thing, he's minding his business, he's tending to his gardens until the day that a wizard arrives in his home and tells him, you don't know this yet, but you actually are part of this bigger story. And Frodo, you're, you're crucial to it. There is a part that you have to play in the story. Think of young Luke Skywalker, and he's on his desert planet, and he's, he's learning to pilot, and he's learning to shoot, and he's learning to do these things, and, and he doesn't have an awareness yet that these skills are going to be used for a larger purpose until a message comes to him and says, hey, 
this larger battle that's going on out there, well, you're in it. You didn't know it yet, but you are in it. And you have a crucial role to play. Think here of young Harry Potter, who thinks he's, he's just an orphan living with some abusive aunt and uncle people, and he's going through life, and everything seems totally normal until strange owls start to appear, and giant men, and wizards, and train depots that don't really exist, yet they do, and all this is happening, and all of a sudden, he sees he is part of a larger story, and he has a critical role to play in it. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he had a lot to say about this. I always appreciated, people typically think C.S. Lewis, like he was a pastor or a theologian or something. He wasn't. Do you know what his job was? He was a professor of medieval literature, right? His life was devoted to studying story. And he made this observation. He said, when you look not just at Western literature, but literature around the world, and not just from the current era, but from every era, you find, in some sense, you find a version of the gospel told in every culture, every story on earth. You, you always have this theme coming up again and again of us in our powerlessness being, being rescued by a God who comes and often it involves sacrifice. A, a lot of things very, very close to the Christian story. And Lewis asks, why is this? Why does this story keep getting told over and over and over again? What is it about us as people that, that causes us to tell this particular story over and over? And he says, it's because it's the true story. It is the story that all of us have been living in, whether we know it or not. And something about us keeps telling it and keeps telling it and keeps telling it. Friends, you and I are part of a larger story. John is reminding his hearers of this in Revelation. Don't forget, there is this larger story going on. Uh, One of my favorite movies growing up was Goonies, right? Anybody? Uh, Goonies, and, and with it, all stories like it. Any story where there were kids who found themselves stumbling into this adventure that they didn't know was there, and all of a sudden there's this larger world, and they are part of this action that's going on. Right? That was my dream. I rode around on my bicycle as a kid all the time, hoping and praying that I would find myself in a Goonie-esque adventure. <laughs> you and I are living in one, friends. The question is, do we have eyes to see it? Do we have an awareness to live in the story that God is writing? And and like in the Goonies, right? You've you've got a child who is facing a power that is greater than themselves. They, They need outside help in order to defeat enemies that are more powerful than themselves. That is part of the story too. And it's kind of our second move in this. You are part of a larger story and we find This text reminds us that Jesus has conquered our enemy. There's an enemy in the story, and Jesus has already done battle with him. Verse 7, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But the dragon was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. 
The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So the the second scene here is that war breaks out in heaven. Michael and his company versus Satan and his rebel angels. And Satan gets whooped and he's cast out of heaven. And then a a voice comes, this this poem explains what John has seen. But, But first, just for a second, let's go back to our side of the curtain. This is what we're seeing in heaven, uh, but, but back to the other side, and try to view Christmas events through this lens, right? Revelation 12, uh, it is the birth of Christ in cosmic terms. The sun, the moon, stars there as witnesses, right? You've got uh, the, the woman, Israel, struggling to produce this child, and now personified Mary in a stable about to give birth. And Satan is looking for his chance to kill the child. And the struggle has a long history, and that's referred to here in this text, right? That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. This this struggle goes back to the story of Eden. It goes back to the story of the first people that God created and their sin and the predicament that that thrust humanity into, and paradise being lost to Satan. But even in that story, in Genesis chapter 3, you have this promise that God makes. It says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, interesting, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. That's Revelation 12, yes? That's the first telling in scripture of this larger story that's happening behind the scenes. And you think about this, even in the garden, as this conflict is playing out, this attempt by Satan to undo the work of God. You have the first Cain killing Abel, right? The first attempt for the woman's seed to be killed. Uh, But through another son, through Seth, the the story continues. Fast forward some centuries, think, uh, if you will, about the story of Israel, right? And their long struggle to give birth to this Messiah. And what happens in Egypt? You remember the events surrounding the birth of Moses? It's a massive genocide where all the male children are being killed, right? It's the dragon, trying to devour the baby. And I I know it's Pharaoh, it's Egypt, and they're afraid of losing their power. But behind that, it's it's the dragon. The story gets repeated as you go through the Old Testament and multiple attempts by different peoples to wipe out the Jewish people. You can make a good case that that still goes on today. You get to the birth of Jesus. You get to, to that point and... You remember tragically the events that surround the birth of Jesus where there's a a king named Herod who's paranoid of losing his power. And in his fear of this child being born, he orders that all of the male children in Bethlehem, two years and older, be killed. On this side of the curtain, you see a crazy king who's afraid of losing power. But what's going on behind the curtain? It's the dragon. It's this ongoing struggle to devour the child, to thwart the plans of God. Right? You following this? Uh, So, 
uh, you see this and, and compare this to what Mary and Joseph see, right? Saddling up the donkey, making their way to Bethlehem, uh, you know, wondering is, is there going to be space for them in a guest house? What's going to happen? And no idea, no idea that there are battle lines being drawn up in heaven. No idea that they're being pursued by this dragon. I wonder, pure speculation, but I, I wonder if ever, as they're making their way to Bethlehem, if Mary ever felt like a chill down the back of her spine and just looked over her shoulder, a sense that they're being pursued. Because in reality, they were. Now, we read next in Revelation 12 that God struck the decisive blow in this battle in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, that Satan has been defeated. Here's how the New Testament puts it elsewhere. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The child comes. God takes on flesh. He does this so that he can live the life that we could not And in so doing, break death itself and defeat our enemy. Uh, 1 John 3.8 says it simply. It says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. This is central to the gospel. The child has defeated our enemy. Yes, Jesus has come to bring us salvation, but to do that, Sin and death and Satan had to be defeated. Here's maybe another way to think of this. So think of Christmas as D-Day, right? World War II buffs, anyone in the house? Think of Christmas as D-Day. This is the day of the great invasion, the turning point, wherein the war is going to shift, where the enemy's defeat is certain, with the coming of the child, the great invasion has begun. And Satan's defeat is imminent. So, you and I were part of this larger story, right? Our enemy has been defeated by Jesus. But, and this is number three, Just because Satan is defeated doesn't mean that the story is over. In fact, it points to this third aspect of the story, this reality that you and I have a crucial role to play. Now, both the the narrative in verse 1 through 9 and the explanatory poem, verses 10 through 12, tell of Satan's defeat. But the last stanza adds this curious line, verse 12. Hear this again. It says, therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Now, the dragon is defeated, but he's not dead. He has been cast to earth, and he is furious about it. 
Uh, a few verses later, we read this. It says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman, that is, God's people, and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Right, now, here is, here is the they that we were talking about earlier, the rest of the woman's offsprings. That's, that's, that's us. That's those who would follow Jesus, who would keep his commands, who would testify to who he is. The child is out of reach. He's been snatched up to heaven. Death couldn't harm him. So what else are you going to do if you're the dragon? Well, you harm those that the child cares about. The rest of the woman's offsprings. Now, this is... This is a bigger topic in and of itself, but just to kind of splash this out here for a moment. So how does Satan do this? How does Satan work? How does he wage war against us? And there's three things that we find in Scripture that Satan does, and all three are actually in this passage, so we'll, we'll give them a shout here. But one is fear, right? And we read in this passage about the fear of death, that, that Satan is the one who devours, right? This is one of his names. He is the devourer. And so fear becomes one of his tools. Second, he lies. Right? He's described in this passage as the one who leads the world astray. Now, if you were with us during fall, you remember this was an ongoing theme in these letters to the churches, was false teaching, was deception, was the lies. Where are those coming from? We get to chapter 12 and we find out that these come from Satan, that he is the source of false teaching. And then third, guilt. Guilt is another tool. And he's described here and elsewhere as the accuser, the accuser of our brothers and sisters. So hold on to those as we think about the role that you and I have to play. If we are part of this larger story, if we are part of Christ's work, what he's done in defeating this enemy, we don't repeat, but we do carry that forward as the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. Now, if we are those who are overcome by fear, then that short circuits our role in the story, doesn't it? If you and I are so afraid of what is going to happen to us, if we're living fully as followers of Jesus, if we instead shrink back because we're afraid, and Satan gains back a little bit of what he's lost, doesn't he? He at least sidelines you and I from being part of the story. Or lies. If you and I start uh, believing in or living out a version of the gospel that is not Jesus' version of the gospel, then again, we're sidelined. We've been taken out. Your role in the story goes unfulfilled because you have been neutralized. Or guilt. If the dragon, if Satan can convince you that you have sinned too much or too often, that you are now worthless, that you are now useless, then the dragon gains a small victory in that. In his fury, Satan has been hurled to earth, and his target is no longer the child. The target is you and I. How do we, 
Friends, how do we live in the story in such a way that we live in the reality of Jesus' victory and we carry out the crucial role that God has for us to play? Overlay on this, if you would, for just a moment, Ephesians chapter 2. It's a verse that maybe some of you know. But where Paul talks about you and I being God's workmanship, he says there that we are made for a purpose, that there are, there are aspects of life that we are meant to carry out because he has made us for those in particular. Right? How do we live that out? How do we live out our part in the story? Well, for this, we go back to, uh, back to verse 11. And let me read it for you again. It says, they triumphed, right? This is they. It's Jesus' victory, but it's referring now to his people and how we carry out our role in the story. They triumphed over Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. This is how we fight back. This is true spiritual warfare. First, we trust in the finished work of Jesus. It says they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. This is first. First, you and I appropriate for ourselves the victory that Christ won. Paul refers to this in Ephesians 6 as the helmet of salvation. The first thing is we secure ourselves in the victory that Christ has won over Satan. By his blood. By his blood, we find our salvation. The scriptures teach us that that blood both covers our sin and it washes us clean. It is a cleansing agent that as we trust in what Jesus did for us on the cross, his death, his resurrection, as we put our faith in him, we experience what the Bible calls salvation. Life in Christ that starts now and that goes on into eternity. We do this as we trust in Jesus' blood. And that's a great question to start with this morning, friends. Where do you stand with Jesus? Are you one who has taken for yourself, who has appropriated the work that Jesus has done? If you haven't, if you haven't surrendered your life to him, if you haven't asked him, to be the one who forgives your sins, who covers you, who cleanses you. Make this morning the day that you do that. Reach out to him as we pray, as we respond in worship, and receive the salvation that he offers. Second, we bear witness to Jesus' work. Verse 11 again, it says, They triumphed over Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. That is, by their witness, the the word used here is the same word we translate in some contexts as martyr. It means one who bears witness, who testifies to the reality of who Jesus is. Right? So hear this. The work of Jesus, destroying the devil's work, this is done. It was done on the cross and at that empty tomb. But... We don't add to that, but we share in it. 
In our lives and in our words, we bear witness to Satan's defeat that others might experience freedom too. And I want to really challenge you to this, friends, especially as we go into this Christmas season, uh, to enter the fight, to enter into this larger story and this victory that Jesus has won. And the way that we do this after we've appropriated Christ's salvation for ourselves is we bear witness through our words and through our actions to the reality of who Jesus is and what it is that he has done. And if you want to enter into the story this Christmas season, maybe start by praying for your friends, your neighbors, your family members you might see who don't know God praying that they would see Jesus in a fresh way this season, that they might uh, surrender themselves to him as well. Uh, Pray, as Paul often did in his letters, pray for opportunities that we might be able to proclaim who Jesus is. We live as witnesses, right? I appreciate St. Francis of Assisi, you know, who at least it was attributed to him, but he said, Uh, Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words, right? At minimum, in our lives, we will all have multiple opportunities this season to bear witness to who Jesus is. We need to really pray for ourselves that we we use those well, right? That when that one uncle at the Christmas dinner table is, like, provoking you with his political nonsense and stuff, you've got to pray, You can bear witness to Jesus in that moment and not look more like the dragon, right? When when maybe you're uh, you're engaging with family members or friends that you haven't seen in a while, there's an opportunity there. We need to pray that God would ready us for that. And and let me say this too. Uh, Bear witness to Christ with your life, but don't let that be an excuse to not bear witness with your words. Uh, in this season, more than most, there's, there's opportunity to talk about who Jesus is to you. You don't need to become a theologian overnight. You just need to bear witness to how you've seen God work in your life. That's second, as we bear witness to Jesus' work. Finally, this is a big one, to love Jesus more than life. They triumphed over Satan by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The question for us here is, do I love Jesus enough to live for him? And this is not a question just for those who are about to become a martyr. This is a question every time we take up our cross and we follow Jesus in whatever way, in whatever form, right? When, when you and I, and we, I mean, I love that we talk about this with Advent Conspiracy, but when you and I make a decision to not live to the extent of our income, to, to not live exactly like our neighbors do because we're choosing generosity, that is a way that we are choosing to love Jesus more than life, isn't it? That is a way where we're saying, okay, My Savior means more to me than my comfort. Therefore, I will live in this way. Or, this is a year-round struggle, but maybe this is more common around the holidays too. But when you and I, when we're tempted in the stress and madness of it all, to self-soothe through too much food, through too much drink, 
through too much shopping, through clicking on that site, whatever the case might be. When we draw on the strength of God to not soothe in those ways, what are we doing? We're choosing in that moment to love Jesus more than life. We're choosing Jesus above that thing that's right in front of us. We're we're living as those who are aware that there's something behind the curtain, that we are part of a larger story and we have a role to play in it. Do we love Jesus more than life? Are we evidencing that in the way that we live? Uh, I want to wrap us this morning with, um, with a story, and I was thinking about this through the week. You know, there's... There's all these stories of like, you know, missionaries and these, these saints through the ages and people who did these extraordinary things. And I was like, it doesn't feel right for this morning. This is, this is not a story about extraordinary people. This is a story, Revelation 12, it is a story inviting ordinary, everyday, simple Christians to live in the way of Jesus and to participate in the cosmic realities that are going on all around us all the time. So I, I just want to tell the story of a friend named Dave. Some of you know him. He was a founding member of this church. Um, <clears throat> major introvert. Uh, doesn't really like to talk. Like, I mean, at all. <laughs> uh, there, I've had people say to me on different occasions, I've known Dave for years, and that was the first time I heard his voice. Didn't know what he sounded like. Uh, But a a man who, in a quiet, simple way, made a decision day after day to walk with God, to be a person who lived in the scriptures, who prayed, who did his best to love his family, sometimes really well, sometimes he would admit kind of poorly, who went to work each day praying that God would give him opportunity to minister to others in the name of Christ. Uh, And and almost every day he would. There would be an opportunity, sometimes in actions alone, sometimes with words too, to be able to show and to say Jesus to those around him. Uh, Over time, to his co-workers, every one of them, knew about his faith, everyone. Uh, it was no mystery. And over time, he developed the sort of reputation where co-workers would come to him. If they had a question about life, if they were struggling in their marriage, if they needed prayer for something. In a lot of ways, super ordinary. In fact, if you were to look at my friend Dave's life from this side of the curtain, you might not see much that looked significant. But I would suggest if, if the curtain got pulled back, if you were able to see spiritually what was happening on a daily basis as he lived a simple, faithful life with Jesus, he was living in the larger story. What about you, friend? What about you? What story will you choose to live in? Let's pray together.